beautiful day it is today. I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving, a, a happy Thanksgiving. Um, I look forward to continuing this season of celebration on Friday at our holiday dinner. Uh, I want to echo that welcome to any visitors that we have. We're glad that you've decided to join us. I'm glad for all the members that are here that you uh, have decided to be here this morning. Uh, there's no better thing we could be doing than gathering together and worshiping our God. Um, when I was a teenager, I made some decisions. I did some things at times that might not have been the smartest. I know you're surprised by that, that I made some bad decisions here or there, but I think we all have. And I want to tell you about one of those stories. Because I remember when I first got my car, uh, the car that I still drive today, I remember when I got it my senior year of high school, and I was so excited that I had this new car. And what do you want to do when you're in high school and you get a new car? You want to take your friends out to lunch. And so I was so excited to drive my friends out to lunch, and I remember one day I drove them out to lunch, and we were on our way back. And I figured out something about my car that I thought was really cool. See, I drove to Shawnee one day, and I turned on my cruise control, and I set it to like 70, and the car in front of me was going 65, and I noticed that my car slowed down on its own. See, it had this cruise control called adaptive cruise control, and I'd never seen that before. I thought it was the coolest thing that my car could slow down on its own. It was like it was driving itself to me. And so I'm on my way back to school with my friends. We went out to, to Earl's Rib Palace for lunch, and we're driving back to Southmore, and we're on Santa Fe coming up to the stoplight, and I said, guys, you are not going to believe this. My car can do the coolest thing. And so I put on the cruise control, not realizing that that's something designed for the interstate, not necessarily for city streets with stoplights. And so uh, we're driving up to this stoplight, and there's a truck in front of us, and my car started to slow down. I was like, guys, check this out. This is the coolest thing. What I didn't know was that your car will slow down, but it won't stop. And so my car slowed down, but it never stopped all the way. And so I panicked and I slammed on the brake, but it was too late. And I wrecked into the truck in front of me. I wasn't going very fast. I barely hit him. And so he, he waved me on and we went to the parking lot to talk about it. What I didn't tell you about this story is that my mom made a rule when I got a car. And she said, if you want to go out to lunch, that's fine. But if you want to drive your car out to lunch, you want to take your friends, you have to ask me first. Well, that happened to be one of the days that I chose not to ask my mom to take my friends out to lunch. Not a good call. I don't know why. She always said yes, but for some reason that day I decided that I wasn't going to ask. And so me, full of fear, knowing the repercussions coming my way, we pull into the parking lot and I get out. And it was a baseball player that I hit, so somebody that I knew and was friends with. And we looked at our cars and his really didn't have any damage. And at that moment he looked at me and said, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it. We're not going to make a big deal. He, he showed me mercy in that moment because what I deserved was punishment from my mom. I deserved to have to call the insurance and to get in trouble and to have my keys taken away. I deserved so much worse, but he looked at me and said, hey, it's all right. And that's the idea that I want to talk about this morning, but on a much larger scale. Um, because God has done that for us. We have done something wrong in our lives, every one of us, and God has looked at us and said, hey, it's okay. You're not going to have to endure the punishment, what you deserve, for what you've done. We're going to look at Titus chapter 3, and we're going to get into the fourth trustworthy statement from First and Second Timothy and Titus. The fourth trustworthy statement from Titus chapter 3. Once again, these trustworthy statements are statements that Paul writes, and he says that these things are trustworthy, they're universally true, they're going to be true no matter what, no matter when you're living. 
So if you want to look in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 5 and verse 8, and we'll, we'll get into the rest of those verses later on, but those kind of set up the scene for what this trustworthy statement really is. He, referring to God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Then down to verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are ex- excellent and profitable for people. The saying is trustworthy. The trustworthy statement that Paul is talking about is what he said in verse 5. That he saved us according to his own mercy. God saved us according to his own mercy. And that's the idea that I want to get across to you this morning. That's the idea that I want to study. We are saved by his mercy. We are saved by his mercy, and I want to look at three points surrounding that mercy from this text in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So to begin, we're saved by his mercy so that we as Christians can live that true Christian life that God wants us to live. See, Christians are to live a lifestyle that's separate from the world, and Paul breaks down what that lifestyle should look like in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What you have to know about the people that, that Paul is writing to, he's writing to Titus, but the people that Titus is dealing with, he's living on the island of Crete. And if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 12, this is what Paul says about the Cretans. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says in verse 13, this testimony is true. So that describes the people that Titus is living among, the people that Titus is trying, he's trying to steer them closer to God every single day. And so Paul is saying, you're going to have to take these people and remind them of these things that they have to do, and they're going to be diametrically opposed to everything that the people around them stand for. They're going to be the opposite of the people around them. And so what he does here is he, he gives what this lifestyle looks like, a true Christian life in verses 1 and 2. And really the whole summary is at the end of verse 2, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's really the goal, to show courtesy, to show consideration, to look at others and think about um, their needs, what they need more so than I think about myself and what I need. And so Paul tells them how to do that by using six infinitives that I have underlined in this text, in verses 1 and 2. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through these six infinitives to start out to see what that true Christian life looks like. The first one is to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be submissive means to voluntarily yield yourself. When they say to do something... You do it. You don't do it begrudgingly. You don't do it complaining. You just do it because that's what you're asked to do. And when he says rulers there, what he's talking about are governing powers. Really, for us today, our government would be the idea here. Be submissive to your government. If your government says to do something, do that thing. If the government says to wear masks everywhere you go, you wear masks wherever you go. That's what what Paul's saying here. Unless Unless it inhibits your ability to worship God... To, to show God to the world, then you do those things. You're submissive to them. You voluntarily yield to them. And then the next one, be submissive to authorities. 
These are people in positions of power in your life. Um, an example would be the police, right? The police are in a position of authority in your life. If you run into a police officer, you do what they say. Another would be your boss at work. Your boss is in a position of authority over you. So when your boss says, go clean up the bathroom, you don't say, that's not my job. You go and you do it. That's the first step in order to show perfect courtesy and consideration to all people is to be submissive to those that are over you. As we see, the next one is to be obedient. And if you look down in verse 3, that's one of the qualities of these Cretans, of these people that they're living among. They're disobedient. So the opposite is to be obedient. That's the second infinitive that Paul uses here. To be obedient. To follow the rules. When a rule is set, you follow it. When the speed limit says that it's 65, you go 65. And that's one that even I struggle with. But that's a rule that we need to follow. The third one is to be ready for every good work. To be ready, to be prepared. What this really means is as you're going through your life, if you want to live a true Christian life, you have to be looking for opportunities to do good things. You have to be looking at people and recognize their needs and recognize times that you need to help them. When you walk into Walmart and you see the lady that's struggling with getting the carts apart, which is hard to do, you can go and help her with that, right? That's, that's a good deed that you could do to help someone. You could help someone load their groceries into their car. We could go on and on with simple things, but you have to be ready for these good works. You have to be looking for them, aiming to do them every single day. The next one is to speak evil of no one. Don't blaspheme, don't speak evil about anyone. And when he says no one there, that includes everyone. You can't speak evil of anyone, um, Thinking back to what he said earlier, that includes our government, right? You can't speak evil of people in the government. What that means is don't talk negatively about them. You don't have to agree with everything that they do, right? You don't have to like their policies, but don't speak evil. Don't spread lies about people, right? The next one, to avoid quarreling. Don't aim to be contrary. Try, try and go along with the things going on around you. Now, obviously, if that is something sinful... Right? We can't go along with that, but in general, try and just be at peace with the people around you. And then the last one, to be gentle, to be kind, to be courteous, to be tolerant. That, that's, those are all encapsulated in that word. And um, as, as I've said before, as Russ has said before, being tolerant doesn't mean that you tolerate sin. You tolerate uh, sin everywhere you go. But being tolerant means when people have ideas that disagree with you, if they're not sinful, that's okay. You're allowed to disagree with people. Russ tells me all the time, people are allowed to be wrong if they disagree with him. <laughs> You're allowed to disagree with people, but we have to be tolerant of those people. So he gives these six infinitives, and once again, the key is to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That should be our goal as Christians, to look at people and see what they need and strive to embody those things. And then in the next verse, in verse 3, he, he describes the opposite. He describes really the life before people become a Christian. And what I want you to see is that this life that he's describing really describes our world today. People in our world today. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Paul describes the pre-Christian lifestyle, and I think that fits really with our world today. Our world still looks like that. He says, first off, that they're foolish. Not that they're, not that they're dumb, not that they're silly, but by foolish, he means they don't have spiritual understanding. They don't understand the things of God. That's what he means when he says that they're foolish. 
And maybe also the idea here is they're not teachable. They don't want to learn about the things of God. For some people in our world, for some people, that's what they think. The next one, they're disobedient. They don't regard the laws of God as important. They don't regard the laws of the government as important. They're led astray. They easily believe lies and falsehoods. They're not like the Bereans in the book of Acts who, when Paul taught them, they dug through the Old Testament. They dug into the scriptures and saw that what he was saying was true. That's not these people. They believe what they're told. They're slaves to passions and pleasures. They're, they're hedonistic. And, and if that's not our world, then I don't know what is, right? Isn't that what our world is preaching today? To do what you want, to live how you want to live. It doesn't matter about other people. Live, what, live how you're, do what makes you happy. They're looking to satisfy their desires above all else. That, that's the idea here. Um, passing days in malice and envy. They hate the success of others. They wish ill on others. That, these are the people that Paul is describing. They look at other people, their, their wealth, the things that they've accumulated, and they're jealous of those. They're, they're angry at those. They think that they should be theirs. And then the last one, um, they're hated by others and they're hating one another. It's easy to hate people if you're jealous of what they have, right? Think about the previous one. If you're disobedient and you don't like the rules that they put in place, it's easy to hate others and for others to hate you. They detest and despise one another. What I want you to see about this list is that saved people have to leave these things behind and cling to the things that we described earlier. The church can't look like, the, like verse 3. The church can't be somewhere that's disobedient, that's foolish, um, that's passing days in malice and envy. That can't be God's church. The church wouldn't look any different from the world if that's how we looked. Instead, we have to strive to be those who are showing perfect courtesy to all people. Those that are showing the courtesy that God wants us to show. That first point, we are saved by his mercy to live a true Christian life. There's a life that God wants us to live, and that's why he gave us mercy. So that we would have the opportunity to live that life and show that perfect courtesy. Secondly, we're saved by God's mercy to have life in Christ. We're saved by his mercy so that we can have life in Christ. Read with me verses 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul starts off and he really gives three reasons, three attributes of God as to why he saved us. He starts off by talking about the goodness and kindness of God. God is merciful, God is charitable, God is good, and he looked at mankind and saw that they had a need that they couldn't fill on their own. Second is, is the loving kindness of God. And um, in the Greek, the definite article the is there, the loving kindness of God. And that's important because what that implies is that loving kindness is a natural attribute of God. See, God created us and he looks at us and his love for us is just something natural for him to have. And then the last one is his mercy. We're in need of his compassion, of his forgiveness, of his grace. And he looked at us and saw that we needed those things and that is when his mercy came into play. See, I think that God's mercy really 
is all of the attributes of God put into action. That's really what it is. He looked at us and he saw that need. And so that kindness and that goodness and that love took over and he showed mercy to us. We are saved by his mercy so that we can have life in Christ. And Paul mentions there, it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. We're not saved because we earned salvation, because we did enough good things to earn that. In fact, if we tried to do that, we would fail because it's not possible to earn salvation. Sin separates you from God, and there's nothing that you yourself can do to end that divide. So it's not because, of our own sal- not because we worked out our own salvation, we earned our own salvation. It's because he's merciful, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God looked at us and said, they need mercy, and I'm going to give it to them through my son. So God has saved us through his mercy. Well, how did he do that? Paul tells us, by the washing, and regenerate, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Really, what Paul is talking about here is baptism, right? You go in that water and you're washed and you're cleaned and you're made into a new person, right? Before you become a Christian, you're a spiritual leper. You're spiritually sick. You're spiritually disabled, and you go in that water, and you're regenerated. You're you're fixed of those problems. You're you're made clean. All of that sickness is washed away, and you you become a new person, a new creature in Christ. And it's of the Holy Spirit, right, whom he richly poured out on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He richly poured the Holy Spirit out on us through Jesus, right? Jesus came, and when he left, he promised the Holy Spirit to the apostles— And Peter in Acts 2 and verse 38 says that you should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive that gift of the Holy Spirit. And then the next verse, it's for all generations, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. Anyone that comes to the Lord still has that promise of the Holy Spirit being richly poured out on them. And then after that, verse 7, so that, all of this was so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're justified by his grace. Once again, we're not justified by anything that we've done. We're not justified because we deserve it. We're justified by his grace, by his free gift, by his sending of his son. That is what justifies us. And because of that, we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. An heir is someone who inherits something. You don't earn the right to be an heir. You can't earn that. That's something that's given to you. And so, ultimately, we're heirs of that life that we're all longing for, that eternal life. So we're saved by God's mercy to live that that true Christian life that God wants us to live. We're saved by God's mercy so that we can find life in Christ, that life that we all long for, that eternal life with God. We're saved by his mercy, and now we're heirs of that. And then finally, we're saved by God's mercy to recognize true Christianity. See, in verse 8, he talks about how the saying is trustworthy, and he wants them to insist on these things, those things that we just talked about. And he says that those things are excellent and profitable for people. Well, then if you read verse 9, uh, verses 9 through 11, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. See, we can see this comparison of the things we just talked about, the mercy of God that, that's been richly poured, poured out on us, versus these discussions on foolish, foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions and quarrels about the law. Those things, the, the mercy of God is excellent and profitable. These things are worthless and unprofitable. You can see that Paul is comparing 
these two things. So foolish controversies are things that just aren't in the gospel. They're not doctrine. They're, they're plainly not a part of the gospel of God or his doctrine. Um, these could be things, like, I've mentioned it before, like what is heaven going to be like? Um, that, that's a controversy that we have, but it's not going to affect your ability to be saved. And I say it's a foolish controversy, not because it's, heaven is foolish by any means, but because it's foolish of us to think that we're ever going to truly understand heaven on this earth. Right? That's something that we'll finally understand when we make it there. Another foolish controversy that's outside of the church altogether, something like politics. Right? Politics are foolish controversies that we can't let divide the church. They're, it's foolish to, to discuss politics here and get all fired up about politics here. There, there's no point in that. Um, the second thing are genealogies. The false teachers were giving themselves credibility by tracing themselves back to people like Abraham and Moses and David. They were saying, we're, we're descendants of, of Abraham, and we can trace ourselves all the way back to it. See, they were teaching that the law of Moses had to be bound on these Gentile Christians. Today, I don't think anyone's necessarily that worried about genealogies. Maybe this doesn't fully apply to us in that sense, um, but something that could apply... Um, what, what school did you go to? Did you go to Harding or Freed Hardeman? Or, or Bear Valley or the Memphis School of Preaching? I, I could go on and on. Does that really matter? Do, do those, those accreditations really matter all that much? Are you striving every day to show the perfect courtesy that God wants you to show? To live that true Christian life we described earlier. That's what's important. And we can't get, let those things wrap us up and turn us against one another. And then disputes and quarrels about the law. See, they were, they were trying to bind the law of Moses on people in Crete. We can't be argumentative about things like that, but we aren't necessarily trying to bind the old law on people. But there are things that we as Christians try and bind on other Christians that we can't, that God hasn't fully legislated on. Um, something like having a kitchen in your church building. Where in the Bible does God say you can't? Where in the Bible does God say you can? He, he doesn't. He doesn't mention that at all. That's not something that we can bind on other people or that we can have bound on us, right? That's a place where God has been silent, and so we can't let the church become divided on something like that. And then Paul tells us, verse 10 and 11, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If a person is here genuinely, and they, they want to learn and they want this church to grow, they're not going to be this kind of person that he describes that stirs up division. A person that's focused on those foolish controversies, on the genealogies, on arguing about the law, right? But if someone is here for those reasons, if, if they're causing the church to split over things like that, if they're trying to divide it over things that really, I would say, don't even really matter that much to God, if they're really that focused on those things, Paul says, warn them once and then twice and then have nothing more to do with him because that person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. He has condemned himself because he's so focused on things that aren't really in God's purview, that God isn't really that focused on. They're so focused on these things that are splitting the church. Really the point that I'm trying to make from that is that you can't be right with God if you're dividing his church over things he doesn't want the church divided on. You, you can't be right with God if you're dividing his church over things that aren't important to him. It, it's that simple. We're saved by God's mercy so that we can recognize true Christianity. And on the flip side, recognize fake Christianity. When people are just here to stir up trouble. Right? God's mercy allows us to see those things 
because ultimately we know what true Christianity can look like. We are saved because of the mercy of God. We're saved because of the mercy of God. I think that's the trustworthy statement that Paul is trying to get across here. We're saved because of the mercy of God. You know, we've all done something wrong here or there, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe that's on a much, obviously that's on a much bigger level than that story I told earlier. But I was at the mercy of somebody else, right? I needed somebody's mercy and he gave it to me. And just like that today, you need God's mercy and he either has or he is willing to give that mercy to you. God wants you to have that mercy. All that it takes is going to him, going to his son. And ultimately, because of that mercy, we know what true Christianity looks like. We can recognize it and we can live it. And ultimately, we can have that life in Christ that we should all be longing for. This morning, if you have a need, we'd love to assist you with it. Maybe you need to accept that mercy. We'd love to study that with you. We'd love to baptize, with, baptize you if that's what you need. Uh, maybe you find yourselves where those, um, I guess, false teachers that he describes later on. You're, you're one of those people that's there to stir up controversies, and you're realizing that now. I don't necessarily think we have anyone in here like that, but if that is you, there's no better time to stop being like that than right now, to start focusing on what God wants you to focus on. If you have any need, we'd love to assist you with it. We're about to sing a song of invitation, but the invitation doesn't end after this song. The invitation is always here. It's here on Tuesday at 1 o'clock. Russ and I will be over there. And if you need to talk to us, you certainly can. If you have a need this morning, we'd love to assist you with it. Uh, You can come forward as we stand and as we sing.